0: morning, Saints. Thank you for uh, watching and listening in. And uh, I have the privilege of opening God's Word to us uh, from Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Some familiar text in, in times like this. Uh, there's a reason why we read these passages. They're very comforting to us. And uh, hear the Word of the Lord from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thank you, sir. One of my favorite passages of of Scripture Um, I thought it would be a good time to uh, preach a message on this passage. And uh, I want to start by acknowledging the fear that has circled the globe. We need to face this fear. There's fear of financial hardship. Millions of people have lost their job. The fear of law and policy makers and large corporations exploiting the crisis for their own agenda. The fear of not having the provisions that you need. And that's on top of the distress of disease and death. And this fear, I've seen it play out in different ways. Hoarding, insomnia, escapism, news, obsession, trembling, tears. And I also see people mocking those who are afraid. Ironically though, they are afraid too. They are afraid of how the fear of others will disrupt their life. So there's plenty of fear to go around. So my question is, is it possible in times like these, is it possible to live with strength and peace and confidence? I mean, no matter what this life in this messed up world throws at you, I mean, how can you get to a place where, where you can look at hard days like these in the face and say, is that all you got You know, the Apostle Paul who wrote this passage, he lived that kind of life of faith and confidence and courage. And let me tell you something, he had a hard life. He did hard time in a hardcore prison. Three times the Romans brutally beat him with clubs. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was shipwrecked. At one point, a violent crowd surrounded him and threw large rocks at him to kill him, and he lived to tell about it. But Paul never gave up. He writes this letter to the Romans on his way to Jerusalem. His plan is to go to Jerusalem, then to Rome, and then on to Spain to preach the gospel of Christ and to plant more churches. But on his way... A prophet named Agabus warns him that in Jerusalem, that he was going to be arrested and locked up. I want you to see what Paul's response to that prophecy is. Paul says in Acts chapter 21, verse 13, anticipating the worst, he says, "I am ready. I am ready, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die." in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul faced suffering and even death with confidence. He refused to be controlled by fear. He lived a life of faith in the face of incredible suffering and opposition, and he finished well. So I guess the question is, How did he do it? Well, Paul gives us, I think, the best answer here in our Romans 8 passage. The context of of this passage is suffering. The Apostle Paul earlier had just said, the whole creation and we ourselves groan inwardly because of the suffering in the world. And now Paul tells us how to face your suffering and all of life, with true confidence. Now, I think we learned three truths here and three statements that, that fit together. And we're going to look at each of them. And the first one is this. Know that God works everything for our good. God works everything for our good. Listen to verse 28 again. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a significant promise. So let's look at it. What is the promise here? Well, the promise is not bad things won't happen to you. That's not the promise. Horrible things happen to people who love God. Uh, Many Christians teach and a lot of Christians believe that if you love God and serve God, bad things shouldn't happen to you. But this verse and the rest of the Bible and your own experience tells you that that simply isn't true. I mean, in fact... Even in this passage, verse 35 shows what could happen to a Christian. We see a list here like tribulation and distress and uh, persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. All of this can happen to Christians just like it can happen to anybody else. So what's the promise in this passage? Well, the promise is not things work together for good. Why? Because they don't. Things never work out for good on their own. Earlier, Paul says that all of creation is in bondage to decay. It is all breaking down. It is all falling apart. We are a beach community, a beach city. You just go to the beach and you see shores with just all kinds of sand. And I'm told that it used to be a mountain, that all that sand used to be a mountain. That that mountain spread out and it fell apart. Maybe so, I don't know. But I don't have to go to the beach. I can just look in the mirror. And like a mountain, I am spreading out and falling apart. All of creation is in bondage to decay. So, if anything is going to work together for good, it is only because God is working it together for good. So, then, what's the promise? Well, the promise is not bad things are actually good things. That's not the promise. Remember last week in John 11, we talked about uh, uh, Lazarus who had died and, and uh, Jesus is there standing in front of the tomb. And what's he doing? He weeps. Why? Why does he weep? I mean, Jesus knows that he's, he's about to raise Lazarus from the grave. And so why does Jesus weep? Because the thing he's about to work out for good is horribly bad. Bad things are never good things. So then, what's the promise? Here's the promise. The promise is that God will take all of the bad things and work them for your good. The promise is that, that God will so turn the tables on evil that the bad things can actually advance Good for you. Great. When? He doesn't tell us. You may not even see the good in your lifetime. But in the big picture, in the final analysis, God will work all of the bad things in your life For good, that is a promise. Now, John Newton wrote this. He says this, listen, everything is necessary that God sends and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Let me read that again. Everything is necessary that he sins, and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Now, I don't know about you, but without this promise, a quote like that can make me pretty angry. But in light of the promise, in light of God's promise to work all things together for good, it encourages me and enables me to rest See, the things that, things that I think are good, the things that, that he withholds from me might be good in the short run, but in the long run, they'd be terrible and God knows it. And any bad thing that God brings into my life will ultimately be work for my good. That right there is a promise. Now, who is the promise for? Check this out. Paul gives two conditions for receiving this promise. Let's look again at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, according to his purpose. So the promise is made to those who love him and to those who are called. These two conditions define a Christian. Now, when he says those who love him, these are people who know God and have a relationship with him. They've become so, I think, obsessed by who he is and what he's done for them in Jesus that they want to say thank you by committing their whole life to him, to live for him to obey him, to honor him, to glorify him. And when he says, those who are called according to his purpose, this is the call of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to repent and believe and find new life in him. These are people who not only heard the call of the gospel with their ears, but they have experienced the power of the gospel in their hearts. See, God's spirit has worked in their hearts so that they not only know God and they not only know the good news, but they trust in Jesus as their king and savior. This is a Christian. Now, you know what? Some people claim to love God and and obey him, but their primary motive is, is fear of punishment. But God is not Zeus, Others obey God trying to get some kind of a kickback, you know? Tried not to be naughty, tried to be nice. But God is not Santa Claus. Still others have an amazing intellectual understanding of the gospel, but there's no personal closeness and affection and Christ-likeness. A Christian is someone who has been struck by the love and the glory, the majesty, the grace of Jesus, and as a result, they give their entire lives to him. This is who this promise is for. If, if that is you, then this promise is for you. Now, did, did you notice... The the first three words of this promise? What did it say? It says, and we know. I'm so glad Gary emphasized that when he was reading it. And we know. Well, let me ask you, do you know? Do you know that God works everything together for good? See, the truth is, you cannot, you cannot face life with confidence unless you know that God works all things together for good. And so how can you know this? Why can we believe it? Because God's goal for us is guaranteed. That's our second main point there. God's goal for us is guaranteed. And do you know what God's goal for you is what exactly is god's good for you that he's talking about here what is the good for which god is working all things together you know a lot of people uh, treat romans eight twenty eight like some kind of a fortune cookie Maybe you want to get into a certain college or marry a certain person or get a, a, a certain job and it just didn't happen. And so you crack open your fortune cookie and it says, God works all things together for good. And you think, all right, well, I guess God must have a better college, a better spouse, a, a better job for me. But that is not the promise. That is not the good. See, verse 28 here This great verse does not stand alone. What's the first word in verse 29? It's for. So verse 29 is connected to verse 28. And verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, what is God's goal for you? God's goal for you is to become just like Jesus. God does not promise you better circumstances. Jesus did not suffer so that you would never suffer. Jesus suffered so that when you suffer, you will become like him. See, Paul is saying that in everything, in everything that happens, God is sculpting you into the likeness of Jesus. God it uses everything that happens in your life, good and bad, to make you like Jesus. When life seems to sucker punch you, It's easy to think, why in the world is this happening to me? I I can't know the specifics. But I do know that he will redeem it and use it for good. To make me more like Jesus. I want you to know that all throughout your life, no matter what is happening, God is building you up in courage. God is building you up in humility. God is is building you up in in holiness. He's building you up in compassion. He's building you up in, in wisdom. None of the bad stuff, none of the pain is lost on He uses it all. And we're told, Paul tells us another passage that he wrote that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It is guaranteed. So my next question. How can God's goal for you be guaranteed? Well, it's guaranteed because it doesn't depend on you. Let me say that again. It's guaranteed because it doesn't depend On you, thank God. It depends only on God. Ed Clowney said that the message of the whole Bible is summarized in Jonah 2, 9. That says salvation comes from the Lord. And that's exactly what the next verse says. In verse 30, look at it. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, that verse right there is packed with assurance. Now, I can't cover it all right now, but let me point out a couple of things. Each verb in that verse describes the same set of people. Those he foreknew. Those he foreknew. He predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. It is the same people from beginning to end. And what that means is that God doesn't lose anyone along the way. He doesn't lose anyone along the way. He will not lose you. And when it says those he foreknew, he also predestined. I know that among church people that raises a lot of questions and maybe debate or whatever, but the Apostle Paul uses the word predestined not to confuse you, but to comfort you. He doesn't bring it up here uh, to debate the theological subtleties of the word predestined. I want you to remember, we all need to remember that the context here is suffering. And God is comforting his people here with the fact that God's goal for you to become like Jesus is guaranteed and you can count on it. And then he says, those he justified, he also glorified. He uses past tense here. Why in the world does he use past tense? I I know I'm not glorified yet. Neither is anybody else on this planet. So why does Paul use past tense? I'll tell you why. Because it is so certain. It is so guaranteed. It's as if it already happened. Actually, from God's perspective, it already has happened. It's a done deal. You can count on it, and it cannot be undone. Listen, I know life is hard, it is uncertain, and there is a lot of fear, but I want you to know Paul wants you to know, God wants you to know that God works all things together for good. God's goal for you is guaranteed. And and, and if you're a Christian, and and even if you don't, don't feel that confidence right now, it is still true for you because it doesn't depend on you or how you feel. It depends on God. Almighty God, who created the universe and holds it all together. That is what gives you the the assurance you need even in uncertain times. So, my last section here, I want to talk about how you can, can, what this looks like in your life, how you can apply it, right? How can you apply this truth to your life? That's our last point. The last point is simply this. Think about the gospel. Think about the gospel. Meditate on the gospel. Discuss the gospel. Uh, you discuss it with people to just figure out the true meaning of it and how it has just, just vast implications for your life. Paul wants us to to chew on this, and so he closes with a series of questions that that kind of helps us along with our meditation on this to get it down into our our hearts. And what these questions do as you take them seriously and as you answer them, it, it has a way of driving out your disbelief and your fear so that you will know that you are totally saved by grace and therefore... You are completely safe, and you really can face life and it's all in all of its uncertainties with confidence. So Paul tells us to think about the gospel, to apply the gospel, and he here he gives you some aggressive, relentless gospel logic on fire. Let me show you. Look at questions starting um, in verse thirty-one. The first question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know what? I know many of you feel trapped by sin. And maybe you're afraid of being shamed. So Paul says, think about the gospel. Since God who promised to glorify you is the all-powerful God who created the universe, who in the world could be against you? There will be people, there will be things in your life that seem to be against you. But God is working all of those things, even your own failures, in such a way that they will actually advance God's goal for your life. He will use them to make you more like Jesus. And then another question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give with him, graciously give us all things? You know what, maybe in this, especially in times like these, you're, you're worried about having your needs met. The Apostle Paul encourages us to think about the gospel and apply it to your life. Since God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son to die for you, he will also give you all that you need. And remember, often what we think we need and what God knows we need can often be two very different things. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You know what, maybe you fear being judged by others or being judged by God. And the Apostle Paul tells believers to think about the gospel and apply it. I mean, God has already declared you righteous in Jesus. His, uh, and it's only his opinion of you that is the only one that ultimately counts. And since he justified you once and for all time, no one can ever bring a charge against you that'll stick. You are righteous in the righteous one. And verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, maybe you fear rejection. Maybe you fear failure. Maybe you fear condemnation. The Apostle Paul encourages you to think about the gospel and apply it. Jesus took all of your condemnation on the cross. He was punished so that you wouldn't be He was raised to life proving that that God accepted uh, the sacrifice on your behalf. And now Jesus intercedes for you. God cannot punish you or condemn you for the sin that Jesus already paid for. And he paid for all of your sin. That is the gospel. And all you can do, all you can do is believe it. So I'm asking you to believe it this morning. That's how you become a Christian, and that is how you grow as a Christian. And then verse 35, the last question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, Or sword? Paul answers that question in verse 37 no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me ask you, are you a Christian? Have you been called according to his purpose? Have you experienced the the power of the gospel of grace in your heart and in your life? And has that given you love and deep appreciation for God, a gratitude for what Jesus has done for you that that compels you to, to live for him and obey his law as an expression of loving loyalty and a desire to glorify him? If so, you can know. You can know that God is working everything for your good. You can know that God's goal for you is guaranteed. You will face life with confident assurance as you meditate on the gospel. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're watching or listening this morning... Or maybe you're not sure if you are or not. Uh, You might be thinking, you know what? It sounds like all I can do is just wait around and hope that God calls me. Well, that's not true. First, if you are seeking God and have a desire to know God, it means that God is already at work in your life. Left to ourselves, we just will not Seek him. So if you are seeking him, it's because God is already seeking you. And second, Paul says later that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word. Of God. In other words, God calls you through his good news called the gospel. And so I urge you to get together with a Christian friend and, and study the gospel and discuss the gospel and, and what it means. Think about it. Soak in it. Absorb the truth of it. And pray for faith. God answers that prayer. And when God gives you faith, activate it. Live it out. I'm telling you, it will totally change your life because it changes your heart. Now, I'm going to close with this. I want to end with this. Whatever happened to the Apostle Paul? Well, the prophet Agabus was right. When Paul got to Jerusalem, he was arrested. He was taken to Rome, and he was locked up. He was brought before Nero at one point and courageously testified that Jesus is king. Nero found him guilty of treason and ordered him to be executed. Paul was bound, taken by soldiers, and his head was placed on the block. And when the executioner swung his axe, Paul finally reached his ultimate goal. I mean, at that instant... Paul left the presence of Nero and entered the presence of King Jesus. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? Going from your worst nightmare to a place so gloriously beautiful, it's beyond your wildest dreams. One moment, you're looking into the demon-possessed face of a power-crazed tyrant, and the very next, you are looking Into the strong and loving eyes of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So think about the gospel. Apply it to your life. Think through the implications and believe it. Now, I want us to end by all of us reading this verse together out loud. Wherever you are. Look at the last part of verse 39. I will read it first, and then we'll read it together. It says this. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now wherever you are, let's read that again together. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Believe this, and you will face pandemics, persecution, and pain with strength and courage and the joy of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?